Hello and welcome to Clinical Pearls for Graduate Physios, the podcast that collaborates with experts in the world of physiotherapy to give upcoming and newly graduated physios key tips and tricks to help them in their everyday practice. I'm your host, Dion Capnius, and today I'm joined by the wonderful Ebony Rio to talk all things tendon pain. Ebony is a researcher at La Trobe University and has a PhD in tendon pain. She's worked in many different settings from the Australian Ballet to the Australian Institute of Sport and as such is an amazing person to have as the inaugural guest on this show. Today, Ebony will share a number of key takeaways for new grads regarding tendon pain. However, my top three for listeners are, firstly, how to differentiate tendinopathies and peritendon pain. Secondly, the importance of deloading in tendinopathies, but not resting. And lastly, the importance of cross-education or continuing to train your uninjured side. I can't wait to get into this episode and I hope you enjoy it. Hi, Ebony, and thanks so much for um, joining us on the podcast today. Oh, that's a pleasure. Thank you very much for the invitation. Beautiful. So I guess to start off with, I'd like to just get um, a baseline and to, for everyone to understand in layman's terms, what exactly is a tendinopathy and what's going on at a cellular level? Really good question. So we use the term tendinopathy as a as a overarching term because there's a lot we actually don't understand about the pathology so the important thing for people to understand is that we've moved away from terms like tendonitis that imply this inflammatory process and the reason why that's important Dion is people then have this underlying understanding of what they need to do about their conditions so if you think something's inflamed you're unlikely to exercise so if we continue to use outdated terms like tendonitis, um, it's, it's not without consequence. Our patients will um, probably not be on board with, you know, best practice evidence-based exercise because they'll think, you know, my tendon's inflamed. So the first key point is that our language is really important. So the second key point around using the term tendinopathy is it really just refers to the clinical condition. It is a clinical condition that describes pain and dysfunction in a tendon. And what's happening at the cellular level, there's there's definitely um, lots of research going on in this area. What we seem to understand at this point is that the cells are in charge and the cells detect the first change of overload Um, and they respond to that change by producing different uh, substances and producing different proteins and proteoglycans within the tendon. So that just refers to some of the building blocks of tendon. And this creates this cascade and this change that leads to other things that we can then see on imaging um, that, you know, just make the tendon um, appear different and function a little bit differently so tendinopathy is, is a purely clinical diagnosis. It's actually not reliant at all on imaging. And it also doesn't make any particular assumptions about what's going on in the tendon either. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. And I think the point that you make with the, the language as well, I mean, I imagine, have you found in your experience that you uh, take the time to, to correct people as well if they sort of use that more outdated terminology? And once you do, do you find their approach um, and their, their perceptions towards physio and what you're trying to do um, helps to improve a bit as well? I'm so glad you asked that. I feel really passionately about this. I think um, 
that this is something that we can all do better. So there's actually a fantastic systematic review that I refer people to all the time. It's by Nickel in 2017. And they looked at a number of different uh, conditions and they looked at the impact of changing the terminology on people's perceived um, treatment plan. So, for example, people thought you needed to do different things depending on whether or not you called an injury a fracture versus a crack in the bone. Even though they were the exact same injury, it actually completely changed whether or not people thought they needed a plaster cast. So, you know, we had this incredible impact every time we're talking, the words we use, our tone, our nonverbal cues, people are updating their understanding of their condition. So I think we have a responsibility to... Um, to say to people, oh, actually, yeah, we, we used to call it tendonitis and we used to think that it was this, you know, predominantly inflammatory kind of injury, the same as when you sprain an ankle. And now we know that, that, that it's actually quite different. And, you know, the swelling that you see on your imaging, it's really important to understand that that's not um, inflammation, that's water. So we talked about those cells before. We talked about how the cells change some of the products they make, some of the proteoglycans, and what those um, those big proteins do is they draw in water. And so you can explain really, you know, complex imaging or, or confusing terms from their imaging in a in a relatively straightforward way. You know, we, we actually know that's that's water. And again, if you take the time to explain people's understanding of the condition, explain their imaging rather than say, oh, you know, don't worry about your imaging, but actually, you know, take the time to tell them that that's not inflammation. You can have a profound impact on their motivation for exercise, on potentially their adherence, because they'll be on board with with why you're promoting that as, as the intervention. You know, if you think something's torn or inflamed, you're unlikely to go away and do your car phrases because you think, well, this there's a mismatch between what I think is going on in my body and what they're telling me I need to do for it. So, so really take the time. That's, that's time well spent. Yeah. Yeah. And that makes a lot of sense because I guess if you, if you get that right, then that sets up the rest of and future consults, you know, if if they understand that, then they'll understand other things you do and it makes it a lot easier to, um, to help them and do the things that you want to do with them. Um, So that's a, that's a really good point. I guess, um, it's interesting you mentioned before that you don't, we don't need imaging to, um, to, to confirm a tendinopathy. Um, I guess if we're thinking more the signs in, if someone comes into a clinic, what are we looking for? What are those more characteristic signs that give away that um, this person's got a tendinopathy? Yeah, another fantastic question. There's a couple of key clinical uh, tips for diagnosing tendons. So, the first one that I'll say is we're interested in, particularly in the lower limb, that their pain location actually remains very well localised when they load their tendon. Now, there's, a, there's some exceptions to that. You know, for example, glute med, they can have some referral down the leg. Um, but it's, you know, it's, it's, it's a feature of tendon pain that it actually remains very localised. Now, I'm not talking about pain with palpation. Lots of things can be sensitive to poke. 
For example, in the, the front of the knee, the patellar tendon is exquisitely tender in osteoarthritis or patellofemoral joint pain. So tendon palpation is not diagnostic. Um, we need to be using our clinical tests but looking at their reported pain location under our tendon loaded, loading tests. There's a, a couple of other little clinical tips that are really useful, Dion. So if we consider the Achilles, for example, the Achilles has a sheath um, around the outside of it, and this sheath is designed to slide and glide over the tendon with movement. And it's a differential diagnosis to irritate this sheath so we call that a, um, a peritendinitis or a paratendinitis. It just refers to those uh, that sheath. That's different to a tendinopathy. And the way you might pick that clinically is your patient would report a history of movement loads like cycling but not spring loads like running. So spring loads provoke a tendon, tendinopathy, Movement loads like swimming, cycling, rowing aggravate the peritendon. It's a lot of shear and friction of the tendon. The second way you'd gather that information or compare those two would be, again, that pain location. So in our peritendon conditions, people show you the whole tendon. They show you quite a diffuse uh, range of pain. And, and thirdly, they're provoked by low tendon load. Now, we haven't touched on this, but it's probably a good time to do it now. Tendons in our lower limb behave predominantly like springs. So when we're talking about high tendon load, we are talking about activities that are fast and activities that ask our tendons to store and release energy like a spring. So you can already start to imagine then the sort of presentation or the sort of person you might see for different tendons. So for the patella tendon, we're going to see, you know, predominantly young jumping men because that's who uses their patella tendon like a spring. But for the Achilles, you might see, you know, a much more kind of uh, diverse range of people. My last little tip for picking the peritendon would be listening to tendon pain behaviour. So tendons warm up. So we have focal pain aggravated by high tendon load, but they warm up, they're sneaky, they feel grotty at the start and then they feel much better, which is why sometimes our um, patients can overdo it because at the start of the run they think, oh, that feels terrible, and then they get going and they think, actually, I feel pretty good, and then the next day they pay for it. But that's quite different with a peritendon um, or a sheath condition. Dion, the more they move and the more they slide and glide that tendon um, sheath over the tendon, the worse they get. So a really good tip that I'd like to give people is you need to ask about whether or not it warms up or gets worse the longer they go. If it gets worse the longer they go or doesn't come on until, you know, five kilometres into their run, not a tendinopathy, you need to look for a differential diagnosis and it's probably the peritendon. And you're probably sitting there thinking, my goodness, she's banged on about that. Who cares? We care because it changes your treatment direction. If I have someone with a peritendon condition and I give them a calf raise, I'm going to provoke them because movement is their provocative load. Whereas if you have someone with an Achilles tendinopathy, I really hope you're giving them a calf raise. Does that make sense? Yeah. And I think that's a really 
I know you said you, you, you worried about me uh, saying you being harping on a bit, but I think it's a really important um, differentiation to make because, like you said, it completely changes what you do. Um, I guess I'd like to ask in, in that regard, I mean, what would you sort of go or opt towards in the case of a, a peritendon um, being a bit angry? What does your management look like for that? Yep. So we need to consider um, removing the provocative load as best we can when we're thinking of um, any of our different tendon diagnoses, okay? So our provocative load in a tendinopathy is our faster activity. If we're thinking down near the insertion, we have to think about how we might remove compression, so keep them out of dorsiflexion in the um, Achilles, for example, if we're thinking of the peritendon and our provocative load is movement, we have to try and be clever about how we can reduce excess movement. So it might be things like taking them off cycling or swimming um, in the short term if that's their, their sport, but it might even be, Dion, getting them to walk around in a shoe with a higher heel like a boot because then they won't go through as much range of motion they actually won't slide their peritendon as much. Now, there are a couple of other, you know, different topical things that, you know, we can talk about and that, you know, we get people to maybe consider with their doctor or their pharmacist. Um, but the key thing is removing the provocative load. If they just keep irritating this sheath over the tendon, you get nowhere. You get absolutely nowhere. So that's the critical factor is removing that load. The next thing to consider if they are a runner, is to say, well, how come they got into trouble in the first place? And they probably got into trouble because of poor calf endurance. So the a clinical example I'll give you is if you have a runner that says, I don't get my Achilles pain, in inverted commas, until, you know, three kilometres into my run, then that's, that's such useful information because... What they're telling you is for the first three kilometres, their calf has coped reasonably well. But then what happens is their calf has undergone fatigue and as they've ground striked, as their foot striked, they start going through a big range of motion. That's why it's so important. You can't just go, oh, runner, Achilles tendinopathy. You have to say, does your pain warm up or does it get worse the longer you go? You know, that, that will really, really help you in that subjective assessment to to be thinking peritendon or not. Um, interestingly, the peritendons hate isometrics and isotonics. Um, they, they get bunched up with uh, heavy isometrics and they're, they're really quite provoked, whereas a tendon, a tendinopathy, by definition, should never be promote, um, provoked by isometrics or isotonics because they're provoked by fast loads. So anything slow or static, by definition of a tendinopathy, is a safe starting load. So clinically, if you see someone and you've tried isometrics or isotonics and they're worse, just revisit that diagnosis. Yeah, that's a really important um, point to make because I guess maybe to sort of summarise that, we can sort of say if we're thinking more tendinopathy, we're thinking more along the lines of it acting like a spring and those um, being able to absorb and, and release that load versus the peritendon really hating that excessive movement. Um, so I think that's a really important uh, differentiation to make for, for everyone listening. Um, I guess you, you started to touch on it a bit then, but I guess in terms of where we start with treatment for tendinopathies, I know you started to talk about a bit isometrics and isotonics. 
Um, do you have any other thoughts about um, your your starting point? Yeah, so the key thing, again, is to, well, there's a, there's a couple of really um, good things to consider in there. You need to work out where they are in their season because in-season management is really different to a rehabilitation program. So if I just talk about rehabilitation for a moment, this is where you're not trying to keep someone playing and training and you're actually going to uh, remove their provocative load. So let's let's take a runner with Achilles tendinopathy. So we're going to say, okay, you've got 8 out of 10 pain in the morning. This is your tendon telling you something. Your tendon is crying out. Your 24-hour pain after load is high and your tendon's not happy. So what we're going to do is we're going to take away your provocative load, which is speed, which for you is running at the moment. But what we need to do is we can't rest you because all rest will do is completely deteriorate your capacity and take you further away from your goal. And that's really important because people have often tried a passive therapy or tried rest. And rest will just reduce your capacity, which means the next time you go to load and you don't think you're overloading, but you're actually doing a relative overload because your capacity's dropped. So what we need to do is then consider how we can get this person going. Isometrics and isotonics are both completely start, um, safe starting loads for tendons. Isometrics can be valuable if people find them pain relieving, if people are nervous about load, you know, these different clinical decisions around why you'd use them. If you do use them, don't leave people on it for long periods of time. You really do need to move them on to isotonics. So feel free to start them on both immediately. Then your calf raise or your calf capacity, you have to be really thoughtful. You know, how am I going to get um, soleus? How am I going to get gastroc? Does this person need strength as well as strength endurance? Probably. As particularly as a runner, they need both. So I need to make sure I'm prescribing that um, within my exercise program. Do they have any other deficits further up the kinetic chain? You know, they previously had a femoral stress fracture and that quadricep is really small. Well, address it now. Address every deficit you find. Your objective assessment should be a to-do list. You know, what do we need to do to take you from where you are now to where you want to be? And not just get this tendon right, but maybe address any other um, deficits from other injuries that they've sort of brought forward because, you know, that can overload a tendon as well. So, you know, just making sure your start point removes provocative load but works out, you know, where they need to be. If they can do, you know, a reasonable number of calf raises, then you're going to need to add some sort of load at the gym as well in, in terms of, you know, progressing them. Yeah, yeah. Um, I think, I mean, there's so many beautiful points you put in there. Um, and it sounds like I think that sort of approach to treatment, having a very preventative um, aim with what we do is, is really a, a great lesson for probably any condition. Um, so it's, it's really good that you touched on some, some really nice points in there. I'm sure people will take away a lot out of that. I guess just to finish. Hey, can I add one thing I forgot? Yeah, 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 absolutely. Is that okay? I just, you know, the other thing that I think we often forget in physio land is the concept of cross-education. 
So cross-education is where if you strength train one side, you can actually not only maintain your other side, you can actually get some strength improvements. And I think we underuse this in fracture, in rupture, in tendinopathy, in joint pain. I think we underuse this. And often, Dion, we make the mistake of trying to keep people symmetrical or people thinking they need to be. We want you symmetrical at the end of rehab, not now. And you'll actually drag up your symptomatic side quicker by training really hard. So make sure you make the point to people. If you can do four calf raises on one side and 25 on the other, do 25 on the other. If you can do four kilos on one leg extension and 50 on the other, do 50. You'll, you know, don't do both of them at four kilos. You'll detrain that leg and you might become symmetrical, but you'll be overall worse for it, actually. Yeah, I'm glad you um, pointed that out because that's such a valuable point. And I think it's something that's maybe not too well taught in uni. It's sort of something, you, you know, where we do the same on each side. Um, so I'm really glad you brought that up because I think that's a really valuable lesson. Again, probably not just for tendons, for, for a lot of um, any other pathology as well. So no, really good point. I guess just to finish up, um, I guess what single piece of advice do you think all new grads need to hear? Crikey. Um, okay, this is actually not related to tendons, but I feel really, really strongly about this. Physio is an amazing career. I love it. There are so many avenues. You know, these there is so much opportunity. It is the most amazing, amazing job. And this research and this teaching as well as clinical practice, there's every type and facet of clinical practice you can imagine. So if you come out of uni and you hate your job, change your job, don't change your profession. It's a brilliant profession. If you end up in an environment that is not supportive, that's not physio. Go and find a better environment. We're often taught you know, particularly when we first start out, you know, to really stick at it and and you you don't want to beat your first job for under a year. That's really difficult advice because it might be appropriate to leave sooner than that in some situations. So we lose amazing, amazing young physios in the first five years of clinical practice. That's such that's a travesty. You know, these people are brilliant and clever and amazing and we lose them to other professions and we should be investing in them. So get yourself some good mentors, um, you know, link in, you know, ring people and just stay connected. And if your job's horrible, change your job, not your profession. I love that. Um, and it's something that really resonates with me at the moment, starting to think about new jobs and where I want to, what I want to do next year. So no, that, I think that's a brilliant piece of advice. I mean, I put, I put you on the spot there a bit to try <laughs> to think of something, but no, great answer. I guess just the last one, if people want to find any more about you and your work, where should they go? Um, I'm not very good on social media, as in I'm not really on it at all. So what I would say is um, try and, you know, keep up to date with, uh, you know, reading a little bit. If reading full papers sorry about my schnoodle in the background if reading if reading full research papers isn't your thing and I get it and it's virtually impossible to keep up with the research find things that are palatable you know the LASM so Latrobe Sport and Exercise Medicine Research Centre 
work really hard to put out infographics and blogs and just little snippets. So um, we try and contribute to that. Um, So just keep an eye out for things that are palatable. I try and do a few podcasts because they're free and I think sharing knowledge should be really available to people. It shouldn't be cost prohibitive. So, you know, you can always kind of Google and have a bit of a hunt around. But yeah, just stay across lots of, there's lots of great researchers. So try try and stay across a a few different people would be my tip. Yeah. Yeah. And that's great. Um, I think that's a a great point because often it's, it's quite, can be pretty boring to, to read paper after paper. So I think just Finding oh, ways that make it interesting. Yeah, <laughs> can imagine. Um, so yeah, no, really, uh, really good point. Um, thank you so much for today. Um, there's been so many clinical pearls and really, really awesome messages for people today. So thanks so much for your time, Ebony. I really appreciate it. That is a pleasure, and best of luck. Well done. Thanks so much. See you later.